Hello and welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is an award-winning platform that helps our clients mitigate and manage their financial crime risk exposure. Our podcasts discuss the current and emerging financial crime threat landscape and bring you thought leadership and interviews from leaders in the field. Find out more at crime.financial. In this podcast, Viri Chohan, Themis Financial Crime SME, talks to Naresh Agarwal, Associate Director of Policy and Technical at the Association of Corporate Treasurers, or ACT. They discuss the responsibilities of a treasury function and various financial crime risk typologies that may be encountered by treasurers and how to respond to these threats. The subject of financial derivatives, commodities and market abuse are also considered in the conversation. Hello and welcome to this Themis podcast. My name is Viri Chauhan. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about corporate treasury and financial crime risk in that area. I've got Nareth Agarwal from the Association of Corporate Treasurers with me. He is the Associate Director of Policy and Technical. So welcome, uh, Nareth. Could you first of all tell us about your role and what uh, the Association of Corporate Treasurers does, please? Well, first of all, thanks, Viri, for inviting me to join this podcast. Um, so, well, I'm one of three policy and technical directors at the ACT, and my colleagues, Sarah and James, we all have slightly different roles. Um, but essentially, we work with uh, the corporate treasury community, which um, is scattered across the world with big and large companies, public and private sector, as well as the third sector. And we help treasurers understand new legislation, moving trends. So, for example, what high interest rates and high inflation could mean for their businesses, how to protect and mitigate financial risk for them. We also work with regulators like the Bank of England, uh, the FCA and the PRA to help them get a better understanding of what the real economy is currently facing. The ACT itself is a membership organization of about 7,000 students and members, predominantly based in the UK with uh, membership also across the Middle East, uh, the Horn of Africa, South Africa, and a hub out in Singapore and Hong Kong. We provide qualifications from level two through to level seven, and we also organize events. So we've recently had our annual conference up in Liverpool. We had about 900 delegates uh, listening over a couple of days to keynotes and, and general speakers talking across a whole range of topics from things like ESG, the macroeconomic environment, supply chain, and indeed financial crime. Thank you. And in fact, I was there, I was presenting on modern slavery, our training there, and it was a very impressive conference, I have to say. So, so thank you for that introduction, Nourish. So for the lay person, could you describe to me what is corporate treasury or a treasury function? I think part of the difficulty is there is no specific definition. And if I think about my uh, sort of 30 odd years as a treasurer, I've done a whole load of different activities. I have bought and sold foreign exchange on behalf of a company which was exposed to exchange rate risk. We had margins of probably about 8%. And so a movement in sterling of 10% completely wipe out our profits. So my job was then, was then to try and reduce the risk to the organization of exchange rates moving. I also worked for a property company uh, with, which borrowed a lot of money, very exposed to interest rates. 
And again, my job was to look at products banks were selling, to look at how we could use those products to mitigate the impact of, as we see today, rising interest rates. So treasurers do a lot of different roles. Some treasurers get involved in insurance, some get involved in pensions, um, some get involved in payments. And when we talk about payments, for some companies, it may just be high-value treasury payments. In other organizations, it may be all of the payments, including supplier payments. But essentially, the main role for most treasurers is about managing financial risk, uh, making sure that there's enough funding to support the business in the short term and in the long term, so that any commitments we have, whether it be salaries or a large piece of capital expenditure, there is enough liquidity or borrowing available to support the commitments that the board have made uh, to various projects. Great, that's, that's uh, very useful. So thank, thank you for that. So in, in terms of the exposures to um, multiple aspects of financial exposure, they seem numerous. So therefore, would I be correct in saying that the exposure to financial crime risk is also quite um, great as well? I think it varies, to be honest. If you're working, for example, for a water company in the UK, what you have is a whole load of uh, customers like you and me. Level of financial crime involved in that hopefully is relatively low. Most of your costs are going to be in maintenance, so you'll be using probably tried and tested second and third level suppliers. And so for an organization could be very large with a very big turnover. The type of financial risk you'd be exposed to could potentially be quite low. But if you're a medium-sized specialized engineering company, uh, turnover may be relatively low, but you may have businesses scattered across the whole world. You may have small teams located in, in India, in Kazakhstan, in the US, in, in Brazil. And so managing financial risk with very small teams on the ground across a multitude of jurisdictions can therefore be much harder to manage. So to me, it is, it's not about having one size that fits all or saying for a large or a big company. It's much more about thinking about what are the risks you face and then what are the suitable structures you should have in place. So one of the things that I was in fact, talking to a journalist last week about was about the rise of centralized payment factories. And that is partly in response to the fact that some, for some companies, they have come to the conclusion that having lots of payment environments scattered across the world does leave them open to much greater sense of financial fraud and mismanagement, greater risk of paying the wrong people and paying bad actors. And actually the better thing to do is to combine all of those into fewer locations. And therefore it's, it's easier to raise the skills of the people involved in making payments because there are fewer places you have to train. It means that if people are away, it's easier to backfill them with the right skills rather than as, as we all know, sometimes happens and COVID was a great example. If, if you're meant to have two or three people signing off large payments, sometimes that may not be possible. So the easiest thing is to say, I know you're away on holiday, or I know he's away on holiday. He should really be signing this off, but you know, just this once I will just automatically release this payment just because that's practical and it needs to go tomorrow. Putting it all together into a, into a sort of, into fewer places does make it easier to manage the risk. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good example that you used and 
I suppose sort of uh, reflecting from the the banking sector where I worked a lot, you know, the the, the main factors um, which you mentioned are, you know, it's actually the geographical footprints that you're you're trading in, the product and services that you're dealing with, and then also the customer attributes, and all those combined are your sort of almost like what the Financial Action Task Force have been advocating for years, taking a risk-based approach to it. Yeah, and I, th I think one of the things I would add into that is the sort of skills, the local skills of the people involved, because it is, you know, sometimes in my career, I have found general finance accountants doing that part-time, doing payments part-time, doing a bit of sales part-time as well. And so in more mature and large organizations, you have the luxury of having a payment specialist, but not everyone has that. And I think for, for organizations, it is much more, especially with, with corporates, banks will generally, I think, in front of services will, because they're regulated, more often than not have the right, what would be pretty well resourced. And as we've seen over the last few years, finance teams generally, especially in corporates, got smaller and smaller. And so people are multitasking and it just becomes sometimes one of these risks that creeps up on you. And you may not realize until it's too late, the one person is doing everything from signing up a new supplier, uh, putting an invoice in, approving an invoice and paying it as well. Yeah. So, so, so the classic separation of duties and checks and balances is what you're saying is required there. Exactly. And I've just been updating our competency framework, which looks at all the attributes that a, a treasurer needs to have. And, and there was an area around governance and uh, we picked up on the three lines of defense. And we had a debate about whether that's still valid or not. And it, it was, I was definitely very much of the view that even if organizations don't write down the first and the second and the third lines of defense, most of them will have it. But actually, I think that a lot of them have it without referencing what they are or without providing strong, clear guidelines around this is the role of the first line of defense. This is what the second line of defense does that is different to the first line, because sometimes people think that it's just a group of people doing the same job, but a different group of people. And I'm, I'm very clear from my nine years consulting PwC that it requires a different mindset and a different perspective. Certainly when I did second line of defense reviews, I was always looking, assuming there were bad actors in the organization and trying to work out if it was me, how much could I take, how quickly somebody could spot that I'd actually defraud, defrauded the organization. The, the good news for all of my clients is I never actually put these plans into practice, but I do remember a famous one for me where I know I could have stolen 35 million pounds. It would have taken a month for them to have worked it out. The head of internal audit was really pleased that I had actually spotted it. She would have no idea how to have uh, put, you know, applied the right lens to looking at their business operations. Amazing, amazing. Well, well, well done on that. And this is really impressive. And you know, the, the three lines of defense model is something that the, the FCA are advocating for all regulated firms regardless. And, you know, uh, recently they did send out a DSCA letter, again, reinstating how important uh, differentiating between the first and second line is, and there's some useful information out there and it's, it's quite straightforward. This is another example of one of the areas where as corporate treasurers, we have the luxury of not having to do something because we're forced to do it. 
but to look at the regulated sector, to look at things like the governance framework, to determine whether it's appropriate or not for the size and scale of our business. With things like free license events, I'm personally very strong with the view and definitely in, in the material we produce as the ACT, we, we do encourage this separation of first, second, and this very clear separation of first, second, and third lines of defense, not because we have to, but because it is actually good governance and makes good sense and it helps protect the business ultimately. And I think most importantly, very, I would say it protects the individuals or for good corporate treasurers who are out there. It's great having a second line come in and be really quite annoying and asking a lot of really annoying questions and taking my team's time. Because what it does is, is in the worst case, it provides me with some cover. If something goes wrong, I can blame the second and the third lines of defense. But actually, if it's done properly, it can help me make sure that what I've done is still current and robust. And that uh, what I think may be happening is actually what's happening on the ground. Because sometimes we find that we've got well-written policies and procedures. Uh, we have reports that are meant to be written. But what we may find in practice is that you know, we're running under lean, lean environments. People are away on holiday, working from home and things slip and the things that we started off assuming were going to happen, uh, are no longer actually happening in practice. So I think for, for treasurers who are out there, three lines of defense can be a bit of a pain, but it's actually a very necessary and useful, you know, protection for, for us as individuals and treasury functions. Yeah. So as you say, almost like a, a, a must do governance aspect that uh, treasurers need to consider and implement i think so and embrace yeah yeah very good very good so um in 2018 the financial action task force published um a risk-based approach guidance for the security sector which has some uh, aspects of treasury in that but would you say that treasury is still more challenging because the products and services that are requested by some Criminals are sophisticated, so there's more opportunities for, I suppose, uh, financial crime risk in those products and services. I think there's definitely more risk. And I think part of the reason there's more risk is because there are more, as, as Treasury folk, as I said at the very beginning, some of us get involved in general payments. And we know that the vendor lists for these payments can and does expand all the time. And so making sure that the right controls are put in place in terms of customer onboarding are often dependent on other people to do that. And so the risks come from a, a, a much wider range of uh, players, whether they're organizations we buy from or sell to. And the capabilities and the, the understanding and knowledge of the people involved in that right at the front line makes it more challenging. These folks are, have got plenty of other things they're doing. You know, we. We know when we talk to treasurers, they are busy for long, busy doing their day job, um, doing long days. So the reality is, is that whilst financial crime is important, it is not their number one priority and they're not, it's not a regulated activity for them. So they need to do what they, what is enough. And sometimes as we know that the bad actors put more time and effort into it than treasurers who will do what they think is enough. And so. You know, as part of our conferences and as part of our events and as part of our publications in magazines like The Treasurer, we, we do spend a lot of time with cybersecurity professionals talking about the latest techniques that are being used 
to try and ensure that treasury teams and treasurers are aware of the latest techniques and are able to help upskill their teams themselves. It's really important that we don't just rely on other parts of the organization to, to manage this because um, it's very easy to say it's an IT risk. It's very easy to say that the biggest number of payments is made by an accounts payable team, not me. And therefore I just need, and most of my payments go to the folks like uh, now West Bank or Barclays Bank or, or BNP or for a bank. And, and so it's very easy for treasurers to think the financial crime is not something they are particularly focused, exposed to, and therefore need to focus on. That's where the complacency can really set in. Absolutely. And the sophistication of some of the, the crimes that we, we've seen in recent years are unparalleled. You know, the, the one I'm talking about was at Deutsche Bank and the mirror trading scandal. And I remember I was working as a contractor in Deutsche Bank following that, advising on the training aspects of it. And I looked into detail of that scandal and it was quite sophisticated and complicated and wouldn't, you know, it would take a lot to detect something like that. But having said that, the base, some of the basic aspects weren't done, which was highlighted in the FCA uh, enforcement notices, public knowledge uh, of that. And that's, you know, what, we, what we're sort of talking about. Um, so moving on then to sort of, I suppose, um, from my research into, into treasury and financial crime risk, you know, I identified five areas, which I think are useful for uh, corporate trends to, to look at. And I wanted to sort of test those with you to see, you know, what your view is on that. That's uh, fun. So um, I'll go through all five of them. And then if you could respond to say, you know, whether you agree or disagree, whatever. So the first one is, you know, identify who the counterparty is and doing classic uh, due diligence or enhanced due diligence. Uh, checking if there are multiple jurisdictions involved in the transaction, because that has risks such as high-risk jurisdictions. You know, what's the level of anonymity and transparency that will potentially raise any red flags? The fourth one is, is there a rapid movement of funds or conversion? Because that may be a signal for something. And the fifth one is, what's the level of visibility from the end-to-end transaction? Because presumably, the higher level of visibility, the more opportunities there are to see red flags. But if it's less visible, there could be hidden aspects. So you can respond to any one of those five or all five. Yeah, so, so, so I think, I think there's, um, there's definitely a very good range of, of areas there. I'm going to pick on sort of two or three in particular. One is around jurisdiction. And I think one of the things that has happened as a result of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is that a lot of companies that thought that they were not needing to really focus around financial crime and sanctions suddenly found that this is something that they needed to be aware of and needed less than needed updating. So we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this year talking to Treasury folk um, who, who previously, if they weren't um, operating in North Korea, Iran, and a few of these countries that are sanctioned by the UN, they were pretty clear they weren't, they didn't need to really worry about sanctions or there was, they assumed that there was a part of the business that was doing sanctions on a regular basis, or in the worst case, assuming the bank was doing it all. So I think. A lot of treasurers have had a big wake-up call this year that actually what they can't do is rely on other organizations. So yes, the banks have got a responsibility, but it's not good enough to say, well, my clearing bank processed a payment. They're the ones who should have picked it up. There's also an incumbency on myself as a treasurer or as an organization 
to make sure we are also thinking more clearly and more diligently and more frequently about who it is we are paying or receiving money from. So I, th I think for treasurers, this year has been a really big weighted call in that space. And I think as we move forward, a lot of them are going to have to start putting in place more robust rules around sanctioned organizations and individuals. And it's very clear, it's not just whether this is sanctioned individuals, but actually peripherally, if there are people connected to sanctioned individuals, businesses need to be aware of and, and apply judgment as to whether they think that's an acceptable level of risk or not, or a not acceptable level of risk. So this is an area where I think um, organizations haven't really had to worry about. And we'll come into accountability later. I'd just like to pause the podcast here to tell you about Themis Search and Monitoring, an end-to-end -end SaaS screening and investigations platform that is super easy to use. Screen your clients, suppliers, investors, and investments against sanctions watch lists, PECs, litigation, adverse media, criminal convictions, corporate registries, and monitor them for any changes. Our highly interactive risk maps and comprehensive and reliable data sources make our platform unrivaled in the market. Find out more or book a demo at crime.financial. Um, in terms of rapid movement of funds, I think most treasury folk don't know, don't care. Um, there's a payment to make, they make a payment, job done. And I think, again, they are slowly wasting out to the fact that their, their responsibility extends beyond that. And I'm going to bring in a sort of slightly different response to this end-to-end -end view, which is one of the debates that I'm spending a lot of my, one of the areas of, of active, I spend a lot of my time now, is around ESG. And in order to look at ESG properly, it's not enough to think about the people I buy and I sell from and to, but actually look at my overall supply chain. So to look at, are there elements of gang labor, child labor, uh, blood diamonds across the overall supply chain. And I think what that does is the more confidence I have around the people I'm engaging with and their own suppliers and their own customers, the more robust I feel their governance processes are, not just around things like child labor, but actually the type of companies that they deal with as well. It may not be the payments at a payment at a granular level around payments, but I definitely think organizations are getting a much better end-to-end -end view of who they are dealing with. And with that will come greater confidence that if your suppliers have a high ESG rating, and we'll, we won't go on today about after you get a high ESG rating or what makes a high ESG rating. But if you're dealing with businesses that pay attention to uh, a lot of the sort of 17 SDG uh, sustainable development goals from the UN, and if they're also looking at their own suppliers and, and asking them how close they are aligned to that, you can start to be more confident across the overall supply chain. So yes, there may still be one or two payments that, that, that get missed, but you can be more comfortable across the overall volume of transactions you're putting through that actually those are with bona fide businesses doing bona fide trade, uh, populated with good actors. And that, you know, you can't prevent everything. You can work bloody hard to try and make sure that the leakage is as low as it can be. Well, thank you for raising all those points. And, and, and I want to touch on some of them, actually. You know, the sanctions area has just blown up, really, in terms of where Russia invaded Ukraine and the, the implications of that. 
uh, you know, for our listeners and anyone listening to the podcast, Ethereum provides free sanctions alerts. They can uh, access for you for ACT members as well. There's also you talked about modern slavery as well. Themis has developed modern slavery training, which I presented at the ACT conference, which is free for all financial institutions. In terms of risk assessment of third parties, we have a product that will help you do that. That will give you confidence of your third parties, uh, financial crime capability and uh, control maturity. That gives you confidence uh, if you have a number of third parties or, or suppliers that you have to deal with. To me, what's very important, you've got to make sure that you're doing all of those three things and more to make sure that the business is being protected from things go wrong. And also, you know, making sure they're updated. You don't want to work with somebody who's got sanctionless software that only gets updated every couple of months. This, as we know now, it needs to be much more dynamic. And the models we used to have were pretty static, you know, last year and the year before. As I said at the beginning, if you're not working in North Korea or Iran or some sanctioned countries, uh, you should be pretty confident from year to year that the, the people who are being sanctioned were the people you read in the, the headlines of the FT, you sort of knew you weren't actually being involved with those types of businesses or people. It's a very different, um, very different case now. It is. And, and with the sanctions uh, area, I suppose there's two things for, from my perspective. You know, we have, a, we have a search tool that you can identify sanctioned individuals, but also you can also identify connected individuals. Now, under the sanctions regime in the UK, now it's a strict liability offence for firms. Uh, for connected individuals who are not sanctioned, obviously there's no liability there. For, for individuals who are sanctioned, there's immediate liability there if there are payments made to them. So that's one thing that's a strict liability offence. So put that aside, but do firms want to have the brand exposure to be dealing with people who are connected to sanctioned individuals? And that's a whole new dynamic in terms of this adverse media and your brand profile and your, you know, how you want to be perceived by your customers as well. That's a new dynamic, which is really interesting on finding. And I, and I would agree with that. And, and to me, I, I sort of put it in the same camp as ESG in terms of emerging risks, because so, sometimes it's not necessarily the value of a transaction. It's a reputational risk that is far more uh, painful for an organization. And it's sometimes it's not even the criminal fines, you know, or fines that get levied. It is actually how the, how the market, the customers, suppliers regard you as a business. And um, if they think that you're doing things which, which do not reflect well on their own brands as well. So I definitely think that, that protecting brands is, is much more important today than it's ever been. Again, we could have a whole podcast on whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. But if we take it, take the view that it's that what we want is brands that are doing the right thing, and the right thing includes managing financial crime, identifying and and you know I've I've always said to people, getting it wrong is not the problem, it's getting it getting it wrong and not knowing you've got it wrong, or getting it wrong and not doing anything to fix it, identifying where there are leakages and being continually on the ball is much more important. Than, than actually worried or, or failing to report something that you think is, um, is, is dodgy. So I'm going to move on to three uh, areas now, which I'd like to get your input on. One is financial derivatives. The second is commodities. And the third is market abuse. So 
first of all, could you tell us a little bit about what a financial derivative is and, you know, if, is there any financial crime risk there? So financial derivatives are, are tools that companies often use to manage financial risk. Uh, examples could be buying dollars forward uh, for three months. Could you have a commitment to deliver dollars in three months? Could be options where you may have an opportunity, non-obligation to deliver pounds or dollars at a fixed, at an agreed price at an agreed date. And then there's a huge plethora of, of sort of broad financial derivatives. There are also financial derivatives that do not require delivery. With where you have currencies or commodities such as gold or silver or, or platinum being delivered, the risk of financial crime is much lower because somebody actually, there is a need to take delivery of some of this stuff. Where, where you have uh, products that are not delivered, where it's really just looking at how an index, for instance, has moved from one level to another level, it may be in um, currencies where there is no liquid market. So the markets may be very thin and they have what they call non-deliverable forwards. In these areas, because it's much harder to find the right counterparty, there may be counterparties that you've never heard of. So banks that may not be familiar to organizations. There may be brokers involved where it's not entirely clear what role, what the background to these brokering houses could be, where the values could be quite significant. Um, and actually what it does is it takes away some of the automatic due diligence that occurs where you have physical delivery. So for example, if I buy U S dollars, I need to nominate a bank that, that will collect the U S dollars. And when I then work, work with my UK clearing bank, they'll want to make sure the dollars are received from a bank that they trust. Um, and so there's a whole, whole range of inbuilt. Uh, due diligence going on where we use conventional financial derivatives, where there is physical settlement, but where we move into areas where there is no physical settlement. So you buy gold because you, either because you think it's a good time to buy gold and it'll go up in price in a month or a year's time, or you're a trader, um, sort of a hedge uh, and, and dealing gold. These are areas where it's much easier for the other counterparty to be a bad actor. Again, it's one of these things where we know that if a deal is too good to be true, it often can be too good to be true. So if when you're looking at commodities, for example, a barrel of oil, I don't know what the current level is. I think it's about $98 uh, for a barrel of Brent crude. You know that if somebody's offering you oil, the same, the same benchmark oil at 50 or $60, um, especially if there's not delivery of that particular barrel of oil, you've got to think there's something wrong when the deal where you already automatically make a profit. And we, we all know that to be on the lookout for laundry mats, et cetera, we think could be money laundering things. And the world of financial markets is no different to that. There are plenty of opportunities, especially in products that are not being delivered, especially in commodity space, especially if it's in sort of new and emerging markets and jurisdictions mm. where the potential for profit is thought to be much greater. So. Some of the ex, some, some of the former Soviet Union countries, one would assume that buying commodities from these countries could be cheaper because they are former Soviet Union countries. That in itself can lend itself to dealing with bad actors. So we always need to be on the lookout for 
Uh, again, it's, it's about doing due diligence and it means sometimes doing more due diligence, not saying that I've got a supplier in Kazakhstan, therefore that's bad, but actually just doing, just taking the same risk-based due diligence you would do for a business based in, in Nottingham, uh, where I'm, where I was born and grew up or in Northern India, where my parents, uh, were born. So it's the same level of risk-based due diligence you'd need to do. Sometimes it may just need to be a bit more enhanced. But there are areas where there is greater risk and, and, and greater reputational risk to the organization if it gets it wrong. You mentioned sort of market abuse as well. And I'm sort of very aware that it's, it's, it's um, clear or clear importance to regulators in the UK and overseas. And um, for corporate treasurers, again, most of them in the non-regulated sector are not required to adhere to the market abuse regulations. Um, there are a couple of codes which are, which sort of incorporate those in a sort of more corporate type environment. Uh, one is the, the London foreign exchange joint standing committee. It's been going for about 50 years. And what it's trying to do is promote good practice in how anyone dealing with foreign exchange markets operates, whether they're bank to bank or corporates with banks, um, or occasionally corporate to corporate. And a lot of it is around, um, making sure that, uh, you get competitive pricing, uh, you have transparency over deals, you, you confirm deals quickly. So all the things that are good practice uh, to try and make sure there is no market abuse going on are things, which things like the foreign exchange joint standing committee and the UK money market code try and encourage. Uh, we have treasurers on both of the forums uh, to try and make sure that the treasurer's view is heard when we look at market abuse. I would certainly encourage treasurers who aren't participants in these, who haven't adopted these two codes, to look at them. Uh, there is a bit of work involved, but it does provide a lot of protection to people like the second and third line of defense that what you're doing is adhering to an established code of conduct to really promote good practice in dealing in foreign exchange or money markets. Great. And the, and the fact that there is a code is helpful to enable, uh, treasures to review, understand and, and adopt as well. Uh, in addition to various other, uh, non-treasury AFC materials out there. No, exactly. It's a good framework and whether you apply all of it or some of it whether you don't actually sign up to it, but actually just use it as a reference material. It's very useful to benchmark how well you're doing. I think, um, we're coming towards the end of it. There's two more things which I want to talk about. Well, three more things, actually. Considerations, take delays and horizon scanning. So if I start with considerations first, you mentioned in detail, the three lines of defense model and adopting that. I think we've talked about that in enough detail and I really like the way you presented that. But what about things like, uh, doing a gap analysis or a risk assessment? Do you think that's necessary for corporate treasurers? I'm very mindful. This is very much around being proportionate. Uh, we have members that include the FTSE 20. We have members who are not treasurers, uh, and don't have treasury teams, but actually do carry out treasury activities. So I think it is very much around being proportionate. I, th I think risk and governance always need reviews to me, teams change, uh, tone and culture in organizations change uh, the external world changes as well, as we saw at the end of February, when, when Ukraine was invaded. Mm. So whatever frameworks we had before, they may not work with working from home. 
Uh, they may not work with a more dynamic sanctions regime, and they may not work with the fact that um, I've had a woman in the team who's been around for 15 years, knew all this stuff back to front. Uh, and now I've got a 23-year-old straight out of university who thinks he knows it all. So it's really important to make sure that these risk frameworks are reviewed on a regular basis to make sure that they're, they're still right for the business. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday about Brexit and one of the opportunities that Brexit in theory should be providing us is the opportunity to sell to more jurisdictions and more countries. And if, if we actually do do that, then the footprint of our company is going to change and the risk profile is going to change. And so where we look at risks across our businesses will change as well. So we need to make sure it remains fit for purpose and proportionate to our business. So what about crypto assets though? What's your view on that? I sort of think that crypto assets are just a variation on a theme to some extent. And there is, there is safe and as risky as you make them as an individual. And I think it's just really about saying two things. It's about being proportionate and applying yeah. risk-based assessment. So if you're, if you're working with a business that is, has got a banking license, um, you can take comfort, assuming it's the right license for the right activity, you can take comfort from them. You can, if you're applying, you know, 0.1% of your assets in crypto, then the risk to your business is smaller than if you're investing 25% of your balance sheet into crypto. And so I think, again, I wouldn't treat crypto assets as a new category and requires a new type of governance framework. Really, what you should be doing is making sure your existing governance framework is robust enough to deal with um, how you want to use these new, um, new financial assets. That's great. And in fact, uh, your, your words about taking a risk-based approach is mirrored by the Financial Action Task Force as well. They produced a paper in 2019 on crypto assets, which is useful uh, and take the same approach. So that's good to know. So then finally, Nourish, what would be takeaways for the, you know, for corporate treasurers and the audiences, you know, from your experience on uh, how we should manage financial crime in a corporate treasury or treasury function? What would you, what would you advocate? Well, I'd, I'd say there's sort of three or four things that are the most important. First, I think it's important to make sure that you set the right tone as the treasurer or as a senior business manager, that you and your team are up to date with any internal compliance training that is not seen as being, oh my God, another bloody chore to do, but actually it's an important task to do. That also the, the compliance training itself is adequate and up-to-date and proportionate to and reflective of the business needs. Um, do you need it to go to everyone across the entire organization, um, including service engineers and people handling complaints? Or do you need different types of training with different degrees of complexity, depending on the roles people have? I think as treasury folk, it's also important not to just look at the treasury payments that we make. Let's look at the wider organization as well. We, we've talked today around reputation. And as a, as a treasury team, we have a high responsibility around reputational risk business. When we sit there talking to banks, to investors, part of what they want to know is how are you protecting your reputation and your brand. And so what we need to do as treasury teams is understand what is going on across the rest of the business from a financial crime perspective and protection. That's include accounts payable teams, 
procurement teams and the procurement process itself, how we onboard new customers and new suppliers. And I'd say the final thing is accountability, because what you don't want to do is be in a business where uh, as treasurer, I say, well, I thought it's my bank's responsibility, or I think I, I assumed it was a head of shared service center. It was her responsibility, or it was a sales director or the CFO. You need to make sure you're clear who is accountable for it. And if it's you, then you've got to make sure you've got everything in place. Um, and if it's not you, you've got to make sure that the person who is accountable, you're providing enough support to make sure they can do their job properly. And very, very good guidance and advice, then, Rosh. Well, thank you very much. I think this brings us to the end of our podcast. I'd like to remind people that there is information available on both the ACT website and the Teams website on a number of different subjects that we've talked about. Or you can contact me directly if you want further information at all. So I want to say thank you again, Nourish, and it's really good speaking to you. I've really enjoyed Thank you for the invite, and it's been a pleasure sharing a corporate treasurer's perspective on financial crime. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Themis Podcasts. Find out more about Themis at crime.financial.com.